Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. This week's guest is one of the most humble, inspirational, and passionate people I have the pleasure to know. Liz Derholt has a heart for service and the drive to make her heart's desire into reality. You won't want to miss her journey from the plains of Africa to the community of Bowness to her future vision of our greenhouse in central Alberta. Liz and her community of young adults will remind you that trauma doesn't mean destruction, that food is a catalyst for change, and when good people put their hearts to something, magic can happen. As always, if you're interested in any of the books, resources, and tools mentioned in this episode, all the links you'll need can be found in the show notes of your favorite podcast player, or head to the blog and pod page of my website at expertinhope.com, and you'll find them all there too. This podcast is a labor of love because I know that spreading hope for a future better than today has incredible power. Conversations like this one really reinforce that hope. So without any more delay, let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. I am Lindsay Recknell, and I am super thrilled to introduce you to Liz Derholt today. Liz um, Liz and I met when she came to a Hope chat with mm-hmm. another girlfriend of mine and, well, a girlfriend of ours, a, a mutual friend. And Liz and I just connected on so many levels. Her idea of community and food and connection and all the things has really endeared her to me. And um, I can't wait for people to meet you, Liz. So welcome. Thank you. I want to introduce uh, or tell people a little bit more uh, formally about you, and then I'll pass it over to you to tell us who you are and what you do. So Liz is stepping into uh, her new Redefined 2.0. So Liz is a social entrepreneur, a leader, and a healer. She is the founder and executive director of Redefined, a community that brings love and healing to young people overcoming emotional trauma. She left Calgary's oil and gas sector in 2014 to breathe life into a bold idea that meaningful work and connection could transform the future of many of Calgary's young people. She is passionate about what is possible when we are radically connected to ourselves, others, and the planet. Her work has taken her as far away as Africa, then closer to home into the lives of young people who are living on the margins. It's been a journey of love and healing and ultimately one that is also returning her home to herself. So awesome. So awesome. (laughs) So excited to have you here, Liz. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So I know that was the, you know, public facing version of who you are and what you do, but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your story and how you came to um, to your, to redefined and the journey that brought you here and also what hope looks like in your life. Thank you. Um, yeah, redefined it. Uh, it's about creating experiences of extraordinary connection and meaning and purpose in the lives of young people so that they find the motivation to heal their lives, change their lives. Um, For 15 years, I stayed in a real job downtown in oil and gas. I had it all. The job, the success, the house, the car, the depression, the anxiety, and the Ativan. That latter bit is why I ended up living halfway across the world in Malawi. On the outside, I was starting a charity, and on the inside, I was living on a sustainable farm. I was also running from something and I didn't, 
at that point, I didn't know what it was. What I do know is that I fell in love with everything about living there. My room was a horse stall with dirt floors and brick walls. And every night I got to brush my teeth under the moon surrounded by banana trees. And if you know me, I found myself the most at home in the kitchen. It wasn't a nice kitchen. It was maybe a three foot square table. We had two rusty gas burners and a half broken mini food processor, but it was absolutely perfect. We'd gather all of us there at night and Catherine, she would play music on her apple and Allison would make another version of a veggie patty and Daniel would use the last of someone's cheese or leave out the peanut butter and he would inevitably be the reason we would be bitching in the morning. Um, But it was around this communal table after days that I had filled with meaningful work that my life got quiet and it was totally by accident. I found myself falling into a deep sense of belonging with a group of total strangers and that was really weird for me. Fast forward a few months from there and I am back on the elevator in Bow Valley Square downtown. And downtown had been my jam for 15 years, so this particular elevator was not new. But the feeling I brought home, um, a pushing, deep unsettledness, that was something new. And it was pretty relentless. It uh, followed me to work. It also um, came into relationships with my friends. I was questioning why they lived halfway across the city where were my cooking buddies. I was pissed off at my parents. Why are you in Las Vegas for another four months? And then I realized that the unseatedness was really right with me. Why was I so busy? And I really just wanted a Daniel to leave the lid off my fucking honey. I really did. And the feeling for me got through. And it said to me, your roots, they aren't here anymore. They are halfway across the world in a tiny kitchen with a bunch of strangers. And this life, this one with the elevators and stuff, you don't belong here anymore. And I almost ended up back in Africa. In June of 2013, it's about six months after I got home, the Bow River crested its banks and my house was suddenly in the middle of it. And instead of being in Africa, I was in my backyard slogging mud out of every imaginable corner with a group of at-risk young people. And these bad kids, they weren't new to me because I had started volunteering in their group homes quite a few years before. But them coming into my house and being in my space, like that was a new relationship with them. So in the day we'd work in the backyard and then we'd gather um, for a communal meal and it was beautiful. So we would sit on the back deck in the sun. And this one day, um, it was too hot or the bugs were too bad or something was going on. And I suggested to them that we move, um, lunch from the outside back deck to inside. And Lance kind of leaned back in his chair and he looked at me and he said like, Oh, we didn't know we were allowed in your house. And the table was quiet, totally quiet. 
And I really remember the feeling of that day because I realized in that moment that these bad kids that I was working with, they didn't feel like they belonged anywhere either. And in this moment, I realized that for quite a few years, I'd been part of that. (laughs) And in that moment, I made the decision that we would never eat outside again, ever. And I wasn't really sure what was developing at this point, but I decided to keep at it. And so that summer we went from just cleaning up mud to building gardens. And then when the gardens were done, we built compost bins that still are in my backyard. And the next fall, they gave me the courage to leave Bow Valley Square forever and take over their work experience program. So in the course of a year and a half, we built bigger gardens and started pop-up farmer's markets. And after I watched a thousand hours or so of YouTube videos, we opened a killer handmade soap shop. We made bath bombs, used essential oils, grew our own botanicals, you name it. And it felt really awesome. Um, It felt really hopeful. (laughs) And then it was time for Matt to go. And he'd been volunteering with me right from day one. And he was turning 18 and, and that meant that he couldn't stay in the system any longer. That's what they, the system calls aging out. But what it meant for Matt was moving to another city to live in another group home with a whole bunch of people that he didn't know. And for what I imagine was a countless time he was being abandoned and disconnected, told he didn't belong. And that night he was sitting on the couch across from me and he said, I will never be anyone. No one will ever care about me and I will never have a job. And I knew that night that the system had failed Matt, but what I couldn't deal with was feeling like I had to, and I couldn't do anything about it. That's when I decided that I was going to commit my life to doing everything about it. It finally made sense. When I lived 15,000 kilometers away, my life hadn't just gotten quiet. It had become filled with meaning, belonging, purpose. I had been in boot camp for radical connection. And what Matt and Lance had been trying to show me was that my roots were right here. And I didn't need to go halfway across the world to find them. All this time, they'd been reflecting back to me my own feeling of not belonging. And that was something that now I could really understand. I don't believe in bad kids anymore, only chronically disconnected ones. And redefined has been about doing something about that. (laughs) It was my chance to bring my African community here. Meaningful work, a communal table, a deep sense of belonging, all of it. (laughs) No professional boundaries, no clients, no case management. This place was going to be the place that Matt and Lance need. A place of radical connection, meaningful work, and where that is the therapy a place where they could get quiet, they could find belonging and settle in. And if I'm honest, it's the place that I needed it to be. (laughs) And it's uh, still in the process of healing me. Redefine 2.0 is about moving what we started um, two years ago as a commercial kitchen in Boness. Uh, COVID in March closed our commercial kitchen down and gave me a chance to pause and rethink what we were going to do next. And 
what my young people have been communicating to me for a number of years is that they want a place to be able to live the values of Redefined every single day. And so Redefined 2.0 is about creating a radically regenerative community where we all live in and participate in a farm. So freaking cool. There, I mean, whoa. And I wish that you listeners could see Liz's face while she's telling this incredible story because her eyes light up, her cheeks kind of get flushed with the power and the passion and the true connection, the deep connection that she feels for this work and these people, her, 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 her young people, her, her family, not by blood, but her family because they choose each other. And it's so cool. And it gives me freaking shivers when I hear your story. So, uh, how powerful, how powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, a whole bunch of themes come out of that for me. But the, one of the big ones is, um, other than the obvious connection, um, tell me more about food and the communal relationship building, the communal connection that I know you experience around food. Yeah, I think food with my first evolution, um, it's my passion, the thing that sits in my heart the most. And so my first evolution out of oil and gas was into culinary school in Vancouver, um, where I spent four months. And and then my connection with food deepened along the way. So it um, started with um, classic French training in, in culinary. And then when I went to Africa, uh, surrounded by food we were growing ourselves, we were on a sustainable farm and um, market gardens and growing our own lemongrass and everything was around us. And so um, the purpose of the work that I was doing there was to teach real women. Well, I wasn't teaching, I was developing trainers, but um, we were teaching people how to uh, sustainable, sustainably, regeneratively farm while we were there. And so my connection to food deepened into sustainable farming. Um, when we came, when I came back and started to work with my young people, um, I also was taking holistic nutrition. And so then it became about how does food feed us internally? And so I feel like food has taken on such a huge, um, meaning for me. And it was just the easy thing to start with. So when we started, um, when I started working with them, it was teaching cooking and then that evolved into gardens as well. And then that has evolved into the communal table. And it was such an easy way everybody has to eat three times a day. So it was this beautiful way for us to sit together. Um, many slash all of my young people might not have shared a communal table in their lives with their families. And so this place where no cell phones were allowed, where we could sit and eat food that we prepared together or that we'd grown um, was such an easy, it was an easy way to connect. Right? It's this really natural way. There's nothing forced about it. You sit and have a meal that you've shared um, that you've uh, shared in preparing and the stories that quite naturally come out of that. So someone might bring something that's a recipe of their grandmother's or, um, it's been such a cool way to connect. And when we opened the kitchen at the bonus community center, uh, two years ago, it also became a really easy way for us to connect with the larger community. So 
you know, people wanted to come in and volunteer in the kitchen. And we had um, Eddie down the street, uh, who's 80, 80 something, come in and teach us how to make uh, chickpea, chickpea salad and how to um, make the buns that he makes. And it was this, it's just this beautiful way of having um, people come in and share their stories and experiences without having to curate too much, right? So the kitchen was easy. And um, probably one of the most beautiful accidental things we went into was we started delivering uh, food to the senior center across the way from us uh, at the bonus uh, community center, there's the Bow Center Seniors Housing, and 80-ish residents live there. And two years ago-ish, we started um, collecting food from a program in Calgary called Spins Around. So we'd fill the back of my truck full of um, free food, and then we'd take it over to the seniors building, and we'd set up um, a grocery store uh, once every two weeks. And then the seniors come down and they shop um, from us and the and the young people uh, in Redefine, they set up, they sit and help people sort through all the stuff. It's all free, but we call it the grocery cafe. And then they would sit afterwards and they would talk amongst each other. And so they would come first for the food, but then it evolved into this complete relationship building thing. And so now most of my young people have, you know, 50 grandparents that come down and talk to them about their life. And it's just been really neat to see the meaning that's come out of this, it's just not what I expected. I didn't expect a whole bunch of 20 year olds to have the time and the connection in their heart to this many seniors and, and vice versa. So COVID has been a tough time because we were pretty ingrained. Um, they were pretty in each other's lives and, and with COVID then it's um, hasn't allowed us to maintain that, that really close connection with them. And so it's been, I mean, again, food was the gateway, but then it became something so much more meaningful and and uh, and beautiful. So, food is just something that I I can't see us separating ourselves from. And and the movement to the farm is to add, um, you know, the the work for me that that my young people participate in. It's really important that it has deep meaning. And so, if we um, when we move on to the farm, the idea is to open a commercial greenhouse and to move into regenerative farming and and look at closed loop systems and bring in a lot of the practices of permaculture and regenerative farming into that space so that they can really, you know, be part of something that's incredibly meaningful. Like nothing we do is, you know, opening a can of soup and then, and then serving it. It's this, it's this way um, more involved thing. And, And that's really important to me because when the, the young people can own what they're doing in that, right? If they can really, if they have taken a bunch of milk we rescued from, from a grocery store and they turn it into cheese and then someone comes in and says, you know, like, this is really good food. Like they've made it, right? Like they've become fully invested in what it's about. And so then they become teachers of, of an experience to someone else. And it's a really powerful, it's just this, I don't know, something about food, um, everybody will talk to them about it. It really makes, um, it's an easy connection point. And a lot of the work that I've seen happen with us over the last two years has been, um, me experiencing what it's like when, when my young people come into this close contact and connection with the outside community in this safe place. 
And it's often a place where um, the outside world would never have been able to interact with my young people this way. And my young people would never have an opportunity or rarely have an opportunity to interact with the outside world this way. So it creates this really um, safe place for them to meet each other and listen to their stories and redefine. I mean, it, it is about a redefinition, right. Of their ex- expectations of each other. And um, yeah, food's easy. Food's easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's universal, right? Like you say, everybody uh, should be having three square meals a day and everybody recognizes the impact of food on their life. Um, my brother-in-law is a holistic nutritionist as well. And, and food is such a huge part of, of their family and of their community. And it is the way they connect, you know, they live in a co-op in Vancouver and yeah. And they, uh, you know, they have a community garden in their, in their building and the rooftop is the place where you go to have a meal, to share a meal with your neighbors. And it is, you know, it is so cool. My little niece is five years old and she will tell you so much about gardening and about the connection to food that she even that even she has because because of the um her her parents her family is living those same values out loud Mm -hmm. like yeah I I just think it's so so cool and I mean even if you just look culturally right there's so many cultures around the world that are centered in food you know I off the top of my head I think Italians and Indian culture and that is where people gather and and build that connection just um and it's really neat to see how you're doing it here locally um and adding the sustainability factor to it so that's very hopeful to me and I know you use that language as well um I believe the future will be better than today when we take action over what we can control. And some of the things that I know you're taking action over is to make that sustainability, uh, to do that sustainability piece and to teach, to teach your young people so that they can teach others and keep that, keep that pattern going. And that's very hopeful. I really love that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very cool. I want them to be able to take it into their lives and use it. Right. So to me, there's this extra layer. So we used to call ourselves a trauma recovery program um, until it evolved into realizing that there's a step after, right? Like it's, there's recovery, which is somewhat a reconnection with self. Right. But how do you make the connection with community um, something that they take into their out of our community and into where they go. And so there's this next evolution for me of um, recovery is part of the way, but then what's the personal growth piece that we add on the end that makes it so that they can go and choose to live in a community, right? Design their own community after they leave, if, if that's something important to them. A lot of young people that I work with, um, they, don't, they don't have the family that they... Um, that is going to support them through what they're going through often. Right. So they're going to have to be generative of that community and family on their own. And so how do we make sure that they have the tools to do that and then have the ability to start the intentional community themselves, but then go to the senior center across the way and, and carve pumpkins with them at Halloween or, or whatever that is. And to teach them to be able to move that into their, the next version of their lives. Right. And um, at some of the communities that I visited, around the world, the transition sometimes can be quite abrupt back into the real world. And so, um, you know, I met a a gentleman when I was in San Patriano, Italy, 
last October and he had invested in that community four years of his life and was addictions free and running marathons and like doing this beautiful things with his life. And he said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to move back to London. And he was in his probably his mid forties. Right. And so he was struggling with how that change was going to be transportable into, into the next phase. And, and that's the piece that I worry about with my young people. It's like, okay, how do we take it a step further than just recovery and say, you know, what gives you the, the inner knowing to be able to do this yourself when you go. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I, you, you and I have talked about your time in Italy and what a cool place that you visited and how you'd like to replicate that here. But with that extra piece of teaching, uh, how to take the lifestyle that they learn, uh, at in Italy at what redefine 2.0 is going to be. And, and then once their recovery, once a recovery journey is on their own, what does that look like? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. San Patriano has been on my radar for a while and I'm super lucky um, that I chose at the very last minute to go last October. <laughs> Cause I don't know when you'll next be able to go, <laughs> yeah, um, no kidding. but they are a um, gigantic recovery community. So 1300 people at the moment um, live there as they're participating in their recovery and they run 55 different social enterprises on this gigantic, beautiful farm overlooking the sea. (laughs) And, uh, and it was a really cool experience for me to go and see what's possible. I, I, um, had seen other places and until I stepped into what they were up to, I mean, it was just so beautiful to see. I worked, I worked, uh, spent my eight days in the leather uh, sector, they call it, so business, and um, was chaperoned for my week by two uh, two young women. One was from Italy and, and one actually had just gotten there from Vancouver. So she'd been there about six months. And uh, so anyone from around the world can go to this community entirely for free. And you work, you, you work and you live in community um, you eat communal meals together, all 1300 people eat lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. And, um, and it was the most like t- to be in a place where you were in the leather sector, for example, I would sit and I would just observe this whole day unfolding as people are making these thousand dollar handbags out of Gucci leather and they're they have all the equipment and they're sewing and every piece of it is put together by hand everything is done um, with such a sense of excellence and in that space there's no staff right there's no psychologists there's no case managers or workers this is just the community healing itself and I'd never seen any I don't know like I'd seen it I guess but I I mean, you have to kind of witness it to believe it's possible. So there is one woman in there that they bring in a few days a week um, that can be consulted on design things um, by this whole team of young people. And the rest of the, the, the work, if you want to call it that, I mean, some people are making handbags and they're teaching each other how to um, order leather for the first time. Like there's sort of this business element that's happening, but then you know, someone's having a bad day and they leave and five people go outside to support that person in wherever they're at. And this whole community heals itself. 
by itself. And um, so being there was really the, the catalyst to, to redefine 2.0. And it was holding it in my head when I got back, um, but wasn't with the operation of the commercial kitchen that we had happening. It was difficult to imagine how we would step into it. So um, certainly when COVID closed our kitchen down in March, it gave me a, a chance to really reflect on, on what was working and what wasn't working in the models that we had. And so we had opened a commercial kitchen. The program was accessible during the day for a lot of our young people, four days a week. And, um, but then they returned home in an urban setting, right? So we were in the middle of the city and they would return home to their houses at night. And so what I saw a lot of over two years was two steps forward, five steps back, right? This, um, this inability to, to make the change sustainable in their lives, just with what was hap- what was continuing to unfold in their personal lives outside of the program. And so the catalyst to going to San Patriano was actually them asking me to live in. They said, what would it look like to live in and, and have the values of this in our whole life for a, a time. Right. And so it was like, and um, so that's why I decided to go. And, and I think one of the biggest things that that it gave me hope to do is that that the community could do this itself right like that you could get it to a point where the peer-to-peer village um, was the container and you didn't need to put a lot of um, there's a lot of structure around it a lot of rules but not a lot of it's by them and for them right and so it was really cool to see that happen and then And then to see as well the, the balance between work and recovery. So what you'll notice in a lot of the places that you go that do recovery community is that the businesses have a lot more employees than they would have if they were an actual business, right? So there's a lot more people in the space because they're actively participating in recovery while they're also staffing the enterprise at the same time. So the general ratio in the community is what they'll say four to one. So for every one employee, business would have um, a recovery community will have four to be able to accommodate the recovery piece. And when I was, and then the learning of, for me, the last few years as well um, in my own work has been to, is, has been to look at, at what's kind of at the cutting edge of trauma recovery. So that's where I really see ourselves layering another, another level on is how do we, um, train our young people and our community to be, I'll say trauma-informed, although I don't love that that language, Um, but how do we train them to be healing-centered almost, right? Like how do we teach them to be um, aware of trauma and do, I mean, it's almost like a more embodied mindfulness practice, right? So that the whole community becomes more um, trauma-intelligent. And a lot of these other places are like San Pacino, I love them. They use the community almost entirely for the healing part, but they don't do a lot of, of other therapy stuff. Lots of, lots of school you can take, lots of certifications, sort of professional angled stuff. Um, there's a recognition that addiction is based in trauma, but there's not a lot of um, that I see or that we were told about anyway, any active approaches to resolving trauma. So we kind of hope to blend both worlds. So I have participated um, 
in Calgary in a program called Bold and Visible that is somatic story coaching. Um, and we hope to be bringing some of that work. Uh, we also do constellation therapy and we've been working with some trauma yoga therapists as well. And so we kind of hope to layer both of these things side by side and see where that, where that, um, takes young people so that there's like this advanced, like, um, internal work that's happening and personal growth work that's happening alongside everything you learn by being involved in a peer-to-peer community of accountability, um, purposeful work, meaningful work, right. And, and elevate that whole experience. I mean, the idea is extraordinary experience, right? And that is what motivates. It's that, it's that experience they've never had before accomplishing something they didn't think they could do before. Um, how can we help? Is there a way? Are you, I mean, I know you're looking for land. Do you need money? I don't know. How can we help? How can we help further your mission? Yeah, I think we're, um, yeah, I am. We are in the process. We just, um, at the beginning of COVID, we got a grant from the federal government to do a business plan for the, well, we pivoted it to be for the commercial greenhouse. It was supposed to be for kitchen expansion, but we shifted um, at the beginning of, or sometime in June, I think. And so we've been working for about the last six months on the greenhouse business plan. And in the new year, we hope to go forth into the world with the ask. And yeah, we're looking for land probably in the foothills area um, and about an hour from Calgary because we want to be able to maintain the connection to, to a community while we're doing that. We don't, I don't want to be off in the middle of um, nowhere. Um, San Patriano was, and I, I felt that right. That was a big difference between kind of what we had in Bonas when we were right in the middle of the urban setting versus being um, quite secluded somewhere. So we want to stay somewhere where the community can still interact with what we're up to. Um, and then there is a phase uh, a phase three that we envision down the road, probably year three, where we're back in the urban setting. And we actually have intentional communities um, in Bonas where they continue to live in in our sanctuary and under, you know, with, with our support and guidance and then working in enterprises that we have in an urban setting as they reintegrate and renegotiate their relationship with the city, right. In safety. So we kind of hope that there's a two, uh, two parts to our program, which you don't see um, replicated in too many spots. So we kind of hope that that eases the transition a bit better. So yeah, in, um, in the new year, we will be moving forth with a, with our ask. Well, we will be here for that. Let me tell you. Um, and just for the listeners, we are recording this at the end of November of 2020. Um, but when you are listening to it, it will be um, a few weeks from now in the middle of December. So Liz will be even closer to to her, um, to the completion of her plan and, and ready to get out in the world and look for opportunities for us to all support her. So uh, watch for that. Liz, I always ask my guests one question and I feel like we've talked about this, but I think you could probably summarize it quite nicely. What gives you hope? My young people do. My young people do. I think that every single time I've gotten into a place where I feel like I'm not sure what's next or if it's right, um, they show up for me in a way that 
gives me hope. They, you know, I'll have a young, had a young person earlier this year join. And when she joined, she was so socially anxious. She wouldn't even eat lunch with us, right? So she would take her food and sit outside or sit with us for five minutes and then leave. And about four months into um, working with us, we had a documentary film crew come in and, um, and she, <laughs> she was so excited. She was in the bathroom and she was putting on makeup and just getting all ready for this thing. And then um, they came and they were miking me up and putting stuff on. And, and she was like, well, where's my mic? Why don't, why don't I get to speak? <laughs> and I said, if you, <laughs> if you want a mic, you can have a mic. And, uh, and all day she was running around, like pretending to host her own cooking show and showing everybody like, Oh, it was so great. And this, I mean, in four months time, right. Um, the kind of transformations that they show up with every day and, um, the way that they learn to support each other, what they believe in the hope they have in themselves. Um, watching them go on an evolution, um, you know, borrowing language from Neil David Walsh in conversations with God, he talks about hope and they start with hope and they move to knowing, right. And it's the most beautiful thing to see. Um, they come in and, and they're, they want something else. They hope for something different. And that is the initial motivator to being there. And then as they, they show up and they work in the kitchen and they say things like, I've never accomplished this much. I've never stayed anywhere this long. I've never had friends like this. Um, that repeat experience of over and over, day after day, um, they start to uh, know that they'll be okay. And, um, and know that they can help other people. And I just, every time it's... Uh, they're the ones that show me that it's possible and, and give me hope for what we can accomplish. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine hearing a more hopeful story, Liz. I so appreciate you spending your time with us and sharing your story and teaching us uh, what is possible around food and community and the connection to yourself and to themselves and all of those things. Um, I've learned a lot, but more importantly, I just, I feel hopeful. Your hope is contagious. And uh, yeah, so thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Hope Motivates Action podcast. These episodes are a labor of love. Inspiring conversations with hopeful people make my heart happy. If you also love this episode, it would be amazing if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Five stars if you're into it. It's these reviews that encourage Apple to promote this podcast to their network. And the more people that listen, the more hope we can spread into the world. Don't forget to check out the show notes of this episode to find all the links to my guests, books, and other resources referenced in this episode. You'll also find the link back to my website where you will find additional support and resources for you, your team, and your community. I truly believe that the future will be better than today by taking action over the things we can control. And hearing from these guests on these episodes, I know that even more hopeful future is totally possible. I'm always looking for inspirational guests, so if you or anyone you know would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. You can find me on the contact form of my website at expertinhope.com or by email at lindsay at expertinhope.com. When I was a teenager and my sisters were leaving the house to go out for the night, I always made it a point to remind them to call me if they need me. 
It was my way to tell them that I cared and would always be there for them. I'd love you to know the same, so all of you listening out there, call me if you need me. Again, thank you for your love and support of this podcast, my work and hope, and your intentional focus on making your future better than today. After all, hope without action is just a wish.